You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. This is episode 51 with Mark Norquist on Fishing for Your Food. I usually just start by getting a little bit of background. Um, like where'd you, where'd you get your start in hunting or fishing the outdoors in general? Like what, what drew you to the outdoors? Yeah. So, um, you know, I grew up with it. Uh, I didn't come to it late. Uh, I was sort of indoctrinated from a young age by my father. Uh, I have two brothers, one older, one younger, and, and it was, it was just our lifestyle. Uh, I grew up in, in North central Minnesota in the heart of the lakes area, which is, uh, a very big fishing culture and hunting culture. And so it was just, it was just part of, of life and, and what you did, uh, back when I grew up. And so, you know, what drew me to it was just the imperative of you're coming along. <laughs> and then I think over time, uh, it grew into real passion and, and love for it. And, and, uh, and it, becomes part of your identity of who you, who you are. Is that how most people end up in that area? I know it sounds like most people are kind of brought up in that culture. Uh, does it seem to be hit or miss who it sticks with and who it doesn't, or does everyone kind of grow up and get used to that and just kind of fall in line as adults? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. And, and, um, I, I definitely know people who grew up with it, whose, whose family were hunters, uh, and, or, uh, anglers and, and they didn't take to it for whatever reason. And, and I think generally the reason for it is maybe just, there isn't, you know, maybe, maybe those situations weren't, weren't made that, um, attractive or they weren't that positive of a situation. And then the other big factor I think is just that there, there gets to be other interests. And, you know, a lot of the research out there shows that if you don't kids get kids engaged in the activities, you know, by a certain age, that then they become distracted with so many other things these days in in the modern culture. Yeah. One thing I've heard and I, I don't have any stats to back it up or anything, but it seems logical. Um, and I've heard it in the context of trying to get more uh, children and women involved in the outdoors uh, is that, you know, you take your dad goes hunting or fishing and the kids may or may not go along whether, he, you know, based on whether he wants to take them. But if mom goes hunting or fishing, the whole family is going. Um, mom doesn't go fishing or hunting alone. And so that's been kind of the push is to get more women involved because that leads to, okay, the whole family is going. We're making a, we're making a trip of this. Um, so again, I don't know if that's, if that's backed up by stats, but it seems to make sense, um, of, you know, wanting to get the whole family into it. Yeah, no, I, I, it, it does that, that reference gets made a lot of times and (laughs) and you're right. I I don't know if there is empirical evidence to support that. There probably is. It probably does come from a study. Um, and, and I think it does make sense. And, you know, that's where, what's great is, is women are the one fastest growing segment within hunting. It's really, to be honest, the only segment that's (laughs) that's growing within, within hunting right now. Um, you know, that and, and archery as a method, method of hunting, uh, you know, but there are real challenges definitely with participation and, uh, you know, what we, what we try to do with the modern carnivore platform is have it be wide open to anyone and everyone. And we try to tell everyone's story with our platform so that people out there who've never been out hunting or fishing can say, Hey, 
you know, that, that person maybe reminds me of me or, or someone I know. And, and if they're doing it, maybe it's something I can do. Well, that's, that's great. And, um, I do want to come back to modern carnivore kind of as our next topic, but, uh, I was just curious, what did you grow up hunting and fishing for primarily? What's the, the culture around that area where you grew up? Yeah. So, um, I always say I'm a generalist. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've got a inch depth on, on, uh, all parts of the outdoors. Um, so, you know, we grow up, it was, it was every season of the year, there was something. So, you know, right now spring, uh, foraging for mushrooms, heading into, uh, in, into early season fishing, fishing all summer on the lakes and the streams. So we'd be, we'd be catching panfish, sunnies, uh, crappies. We'd be catching bass, walleyes, Northern pike. Um, and then we'd be stream fishing too for trout and then heading into the fall season, you know, we'd start out with grouse and, and small game and, and going into waterfall and then uh, ultimately into, into whitetail hunting and uh, as, as sort of the, the primary areas, which would then transition into ice fishing in the winter. And I grew up doing a lot of uh, spear fishing and, and just regular angling through the ice. Um, and then it starts all over in the spring. And, and, you know, one, it, one of the things that's, that's interesting is we, we've been doing a lot with turkey hunting in the last couple of years. And, uh, that's new for me and uh, younger people who are, who are really have gotten really avid into hunting recently, um, are always amazed by that. They're like, how could you not have been out turkey hunting yet? And I always say, you know, when I grew up, we didn't have turkeys in Minnesota. Um, I mean, it's a wonderful success story, conservation success story of the trap and transplant, uh, strategies that, that have worked well. Um, and where I grew up fishing was a big part of, of spring. And so you were busy already with a lot of those things, but, um, yeah, so it, very much a generalist and in, in all, all those areas. You know, you kind of highlighted this, I think accidentally there, but, um, one thing I appreciate about uh, the idea of being a generalist is that you never get bored. There's not a bored season. Um, and it, it even extends beyond hunting and fishing. I mean, I identify maybe as like a skier in the winter, a uh, fisherman in the summer, a hunter in the fall. And it there's no boring season. I don't have enough time to do everything I want to do. And I, I feel a little bad for people who focus so much on something that uh, they're like, oh, I'm. I love you know June through August, but I don't really know what to do with my time the rest of the year. And I'm like, I wish I had that problem, because uh, I I can't. I don't have enough time for all the things I want to do. Um, and so being a generalist, I think, kind of keeps you busy throughout the year. Uh, you don't you don't have a time to um, sit and twiddle your thumbs. No, you don't. And it's and it's that then it becomes really just a part of a lifestyle. Um, and you know, one, one could make an argument who's a special, somebody who's a specialist in let's say backcountry out West, big game hunting or fly fishing as a perfect example. Uh, my brother, I mean, I, I consider my, I always say I fly fish. I'm not a fly fisherman, um, because I, I don't tie my own flies. I will when I'm retired, I think. And I did buy buy a, a fly tying kit a few years ago because our daughter, we were at the Midwest Fly Fishing Show, which I don't know if you've ever been to. It's based here in the Twin Cities. It's a great regional fly fishing show. And uh, they do this phenomenal program for kids where they create a passport and the kids go through and they meet with an entomologist. They learn about bugs. Then they go and they work on, on casting. Then they're going to go to a fly tying station and they go through, I think, about a dozen different 
places that they have to get their passport stamped. Uh, and then I forget what they got at the end, but my daughter fell in love with tying flies. And I thought, well, I guess I gotta, I gotta start earlier than I, than I planned, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love fly fishing. Um, I've done a lot of fly fishing over the years, uh, but I would not call myself like a really avid flash fisherman where I'm only going to be dedicated to that way of pursuit. You know, I, I spin fish. I, I do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. You know, I've kind of come around on that. I grew up uh, spin fishing uh, exclusively and picked up fly fishing later. And there were a couple of years after I started where I, I was convinced I would never touch a spin rod again. And I think I needed to get that out of my system a little bit. And obviously uh, I probably do about 90, 90 to 95% of my fishing with a fly rod these days, but I definitely uh, enjoy picking up different, different methods uh, now and then to just vary it up. And, you know, sometimes it's not the right technique for the, for the time. I mean, I don't know a lot of people who consistently catch walleye on a fly rod. You know, that's just <laughs> not, not, I mean, it happens, but it's not the primary means of, of catching walleye or, uh, I mean, I guess carp is getting more popular on a fly rod, but there are just some species that have traditionally not been caught on a fly rod and, uh, it's not always the best technique. So I, I'm kind of coming back around on the, I want to get, I want to get back into being a little bit more of a generalist in that sense. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, you know, and there's, and there's a lot of reasons, you know, you could say that. And and I think, you know, to each their own, to people who want to be purists and wouldn't think about doing anything else. Um, wonderful. That's, that's great for you. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you may try different, you may use different techniques. Like you said, walleye, or let's say, you know, carp are getting more popular, but, uh, you know, whitefish, uh, up here, very deep water fish, you, you'd be hard pressed to find a way to, to go after them with a fly, I think. Um, and I'm sure somebody's going to write in and tell, tell you I'm wrong on saying that because they catch whitefish all the time on the fly. Right. But Actually. Then have, <laughs> right. But then you have other reasons. Like, so years ago, my gosh, this was a lot of years ago. My brother and I did a two week, uh, fishing trip to Alaska and we just floated a river for over a week. And we started in the upper reaches. We were catching our Arctic grayling and we we're getting into rainbows in the midsection. And finally we were getting into Kings down in the lower and I didn't have enough money to buy an eight or a 10 weight rod. So I was fly fishing for the grayling. I was fly fishing for, for the rainbows. But once we got into the Kings, I had to switch over to spin, spin gear. And I was throwing out spoons just because I didn't have the money at the time to buy a, a, a really nice 10 weight. So, um, you know, so for a lot of different reasons, and I didn't, I didn't have any problem with that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. My, uh, my goal for this summer is I, I've never caught a catfish and I really, really want to catch a catfish. So I'm thinking I'm going to go down to the pond, stick a rod and a rod holder with a bell on the end and then go fly fish for panfish while I wait <laughs> for the bell. Uh, so I got my extra rod stamp this year in hopes of maybe catching a catfish while also getting to catch panfish on the fly rod, uh, as my combo. <laughs> Could always try noodling, go south and try noodling. Huh? You know, that's the one technique that I don't think I'll ever do. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all for you. trying with, new things. <laughs> I'm with you. It's, it's, it's not really something that's on the top of my list either. Yeah. Yeah. Sticking my hand in murky, muddy holes isn't, <laughs> isn't my idea of a great time. Uh, well, okay. So let's, let's move on and uh, tell me a little bit about modern carnivore as a whole. Like if you were giving an elevator pitch to somebody about what it is, um, maybe someone who's never heard of it or isn't familiar with uh, hunting and fishing and how you guys approach it. Sure. Um, so we, we focus on, on adults, not, not kids. And it's, and it's really, we try to, to draw people into the idea of having a lifestyle where you, where you hunt and fish and forage by having conversations that start out f- focused on food, 
um, and really saying, hey, have you ever tried wild game? And either people say no, or, or they've probably had a bad experience because, you know, maybe Uncle Larry made venison and overcooked it and it was really tough and chewy. And, and, uh, and so, um, you know, a lot of people have those types of reactions, but, you know, we found, I like to say that we did, we did a, a research study. We found that 99% of, of the people in our target market, uh, eat. And so we figured that that was a good, a good way to approach it. But, um, you know, some people look at it in terms of, cause we do like, like we've got, uh, chef Lucas leaf. We have Jamie Carlson on the platform doing these great recipes. And so some people would look at it and say, okay, you're, you're trying to get foodies interested in hunting, fishing. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a certain, I, I think there's a certain draw for someone who, who would consider themselves a foodie, but it's not just that it, it truly is anybody who likes eating good food is up for learning about new adventures in the outdoors. Um, and there could be a lot of reasons you may want to come to it. Again, you want to try something new. You want to uh, be more connected to nature. Um, and for a lot of people, it is, you know, with our name, it's, it's hey, if I'm going to eat meat, I want to be more directly involved with what's going on. And so that I know that, you know, it's being done in the right way. Um, and so that's, that's, what's fun. So we do, we do everything from, you know, uh, we've got a couple podcasts, we have a blog, we do a lot of recipes, we do storytelling, we do a lot of video production to do, to do storytelling. And then we do events. So we just did a, uh, a Turkey camp two weeks ago up in North central Minnesota through a partner with the S partnership with the SCI foundation. And it was, and it was to introduce uh, people to turkey hunting. So they go through a long, uh, couple, several week uh, um, introduction and learning course online through our, our learning portal, and then we bring them together. And so we had two women from Texas. We had a woman from New York, from Long Island, come on their first hunt and come to Northern Minnesota for the first time. And uh, it's no matter how much you do that, you never get tired of seeing the reactions of people when they're part of it. Maybe they, maybe they got their first bird, they got the first animal uh, or fish, or maybe they just were part of the group or somebody else that they got to know uh, hit that milestone. Just the excitement and, and, and the joy in, in the process is, is so fun to see. So how is your uh, learning center set up? Is it like a masterclass style uh program or is it, um, you know, YouTube based? What's the learning center like? Yeah, really, really good question. So it, it is very much masterclass style. So it is a, it's, a, it's an online learning portal, uh, called hunting camp live. So if anybody wants to check it out, it's huntingcamp.live. Um, and it's all video-based learning modules. So as an example, right now, we've got two signature courses out there. One is learn to hunt upland birds and the other is learn to hunt turkeys. And so like learn to hunt upland birds is 72 individual video-based lessons within six chapters. And it's everything from uh, identification of upland birds and understanding five different species to uh, navigation and safety uh, out in the wilds to um, how to cook to uh, shot shells, to shotguns, understanding shotguns, and very much from the standpoint of using language um, and, and having an approach for the average person that never grew up with guns, that doesn't know the first thing about hunting, and they need to understand the basics because there are a lot of barriers. And so that's what we're trying to do is break down all those barriers to entry. 
Now, are there any plans for more of those courses uh, covering different topics? Yep, yep. We've got we got a lot in the mix. <laughs> are you allowed to are you allowed to spill the beans at all, or is this a uh, top secret? Well, for not now? yet. I mean, we will ha- <laughs> we will have hopefully this fall. Um, we will have one or two new uh, new courses. Um, and then, uh, 2022 will be a very, should be a very big year with a lot of different projects going on that, that we have planned. So, yeah. Are, so, are these all hunting or are there any like fishing ones in the works? So, um, we have, uh, we have others within foraging and with fishing. Absolutely. And what's, what's funny is over the years. So I, I, I started this platform about 10 years ago and it's grown really slow. And you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, you know, I've been doing it for a lot of years. It's been my passion. It's been sort of a side project, but it's progressively been moving more forefront in terms of, of my professional life and, and what I'm, what I'm doing. And, um, I originally had this idea that it was the business model was to get people interested and connected to sustainably sourced meat at their grocers. So, you know, like I know people who have um, pig farms and are, are raising cattle and things like that, but they didn't necessarily have avenues. It's like, well, let's connect up consumers with that. And then let's progressively move them down the pathway to becoming an outdoors person. So let's then transition into foraging light, then maybe panfish going after panfish, then into bigger fish, then ultimately into small game hunting, progressively into large ungulates or something like that. So that was, that was the very linear model. And what I found over time was um, there kept being this response to, to me of, of, well, what about hunting? And, and I want to learn about hunting. And what I found is that there was a really interesting novelty and allure of hunting that didn't exist in, in the other, in the other areas, which is, um, you know, I don't know a whole lot about this hunting thing and it's pretty black and white. You're going to take the animal, you know, like as compared to, let's say, you know, fly fishing, take a a catch and release only fly fishing culture. Um, the, the eating component isn't an element of that. It is purely the sport of going out after the chase. Um, and, and hunting is very black and white of people are saying, okay, this animal is going to die and therefore I need to eat it. And if I'm going to eat it, I want to do it right. And if I'm going to do it right, I want to learn how to cook it really well. So it becomes a much more uh, complex um, experience that's pretty rich. And, um, and so with that, ended up moving hunting more to the forefront. And so right now we have hunting camp live. But uh, yes, absolutely. There will be a fishing camp live, a forging camp live and others uh, in the future. (laughs) You know, I don't want to, I'm sure that I'm going to alienate a portion of my listenership by saying this, and I don't mean it in a derogatory way at all, but uh, I think the catch and release only culture and not, not people who casually say like, I just don't, you know, I don't really like the taste of fish. So I release what I catch, but the people who are very vehemently against keeping fish in any situation, catch and release is the only responsible thing to do. Um, I think there's something missing uh, there. And and most of the fish I catch, I release. I mean, and there's, and there's species I will not keep. Um, our, our native cutthroats here, even if it's legal to keep, I, I won't keep them. Um, but I think that there is a little bit of something missing from the activity uh, if you never keep anything you catch. Because there's just something that, there's, there's a, like a line you cross where, like you said, you do take a life and you do have to think about that. And um, I know a lot of people just like toss their fish on the on shore, but I, I 
deliberately kill each fish I catch because I don't like watching them suffer. Um, and I think that that process uh, brings me more in depth with the activity as a whole, even if uh, I am not keeping fish on any given day. Um, just knowing that I do occasionally do that and I will occasionally do that, um, I think brings me deeper into the into the sport. Um, and I'm not sure what your thoughts on that are, but I think it would be a positive thing for people who have never kept a fish um, or hunted, but uh, you know, most of the, my listeners are fishermen um, and maybe don't hunt at all. Uh, I think it would be a positive experience for a lot of them to occasionally keep a fish. And even if it's just like a stalker rainbow that you don't really have to feel as bad about, I think the, the act of keeping a fish now and then would, would bring people a little bit closer to the sport. No, I, I agree. I think we, we have a very similar philosophy on that. And again, to each their own. Um, and I have a lot of you know, close friends and relatives that are much more catch and release, but, but we'll still keep one gen one or two generally here or there. Um, and I do think, um, I do think that, th that it's an aspect of killing that animal and eating it or that fish or that bird, um, enriches the, the full experience and makes it that much deeper and more meaningful. And I look at it also from a conservation perspective, which is an ethic that any catch and release uh, angler would, would generally have. And, and that is that, you know, if you are going to go out and hunt fish or forage, and you're going to then take life of that, of that living being, or you're going to take that forage for that item, um, and you're going to literally ingest that item into your body, you're going to be thinking about that environment it's living in. And, and you're going to be thinking about, is that water clean? Um, are we keeping these, these forests healthy? Are the, are, are the, the, the grasslands that are gone and, and going away very rapidly? Um, are we, are we doing the right things to make sure we have healthy environments? Um, and so that's, that's something that I believe you don't get if you're not, if you're not partaking in, in the actual killing and, and eating of the, of the quarry, um, you know, and, and again, not to, not to, not to, to, to piss too many people off here, but yeah, it, it, I think if you're doing purely catch and release and you're a really avid angler, there's still a mortality rate there. It's just unseen. And, and, and so, you know, ignorance is bliss, but, uh, there's a mortality rate there. And so the question, you know, sort of the age old question of, of which is better, uh, catching it and, and killing three fish or catching and releasing 30. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on how, how responsible you are with handling and things like that. Um, but I've definitely seen some pictures of fish online that are labeled as like, Oh, let them go, let them grow. And I'm like, that would have been better on the plate because it's dead anyway. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right. Exactly. Uh, based, based on the photo I'm seeing right now. So yeah, I mean, and I, I never really thought of it that way, but I agree with um, what you said about kind of being a little bit more cognizant of the environment it's in. Cause there are a lot of fish around here that I don't keep because of where I caught them. Um, you know, we've got mines around here and I'm not going to really keep much down in the Denver Metro area. Um, but, and I've thought of it that way is, and I don't want to eat this because of where I caught it, but I never really thought about the fact that that does kind of translate to, uh, I might care a little bit more about, you know, put being an advocate for cleaning up our, our local waterways, um, or our rivers to, to prevent that, you know, mine drainage or whatever other pollution is getting into the waterway. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I mean, I think it's, um, I think it just becomes very, very personal when, when that's, that is the case. And, and, um, you know, there have been, there have been some stories in the media as of late through big media outlets talking about, should we really be recruiting people into hunting and angling, or do we have enough out there? And, and one of the, one of the stories was, was the argument was we should be focusing on making people better conservationists rather than, rather than hunters. And, and I don't think it's an either, or I think it's a both. And I think if somebody doesn't want to hunt, that's fine. Let's make them conservation. If we can get somebody to learn about and appreciate hunting and maybe even become a hunter, um, you look at, look at DU, look at TU, look at all of the critter clubs across the country, Pheasants Forever and uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, et cetera. And the amount of, of resource that goes into conservation because of the people who truly appreciate the, the, the necessity of healthy forests, waters, and, and wildlife, um, I, I think those are some of the best conservationists out there. Um, and and, and we, should, we should do do what we can to bring more people into the fold to have that appreciation. Yeah, and I know, you know it's not required that you are an avid fisherman with a current fishing license to join Trout Unlimited or uh, an avid hunter with a current duck stamp to go be a member of Ducks Unlimited. But that happens to be most of the the population of those organizations. I mean, you don't, that's not required to join. And I would welcome anybody who says, I don't fish, but I want to help trout. I'd be like, sure, come to, like, come to the Trout Unlimited meeting. Um, but the fact is that people need a motivation to, to stand up for something. And uh, people who are using that resource have a lot more motivation than someone who doesn't uh, it, to actually get out and do something. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and even along the lines of, of uh, again, you don't have to. And, and a lot of organizations, I think Audubon in recent years has, has done some pushes around, you know, people buying duck stamp. I might be wrong in that, but I know some groups have, and I believe Audubon was one, um, have, have encouraged people if they're birders or if they're conservationists, go buy a duck stamp. It's not just for duck hunters. That's, that's money goes to the, to the right things. Um, but, um, that, you know, we've done in the last few years have done, have done butchering clinics. Uh, I've done a bunch of them in my, in my garage of where I just invite people over uh, and I get a deer in the fall and I say, Hey, come on over where this deer is hanging and we're going to butcher it and you can watch the whole process. And not only we had experienced hunters and brand new hunters, uh, we've had friends or relatives of new hunters who say, you know what? I want to just see the process and understand it. I'm not going to ever become a hunter, but they're fascinated by it. And they just sit there and they take it all in and they want to be part of the process and understand it, even though they know they'll personally never do it. And I have so much respect for that. I think that is just wonderful. And I'd, I'd take that all day long in terms of people coming in and saying, you know, you don't have to take part. If, if you want to understand it, that's, that's all I, that's all I, I care about. And, and I appreciate your, your interest in that. Absolutely. Now, do you get a lot of pushback about modern carnivore? I know most of the people who are interacting with you are probably interested in, uh, you know, learning from you or, or reading your website or listening to your podcast. But I'm like, I can't imagine that being in the realm that you're in, that you don't get some pushback from people about how it's not responsible to encourage people to 
eat more meat or go kill animals for fun or rip fish out of the water for fun or whatever the whatever they think your motivation is. Um, have you gotten much pushback from people? And if so, what are the arguments that they come with? You know, um, I have to say I've gotten next to zero. Oh, well, that's back. great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I see specifically within, you know, modern carnivore um, and, and mostly from the standpoint of, you know, you know, I, I was in a, um, are you familiar with Clubhouse, this new social media platform? I've heard of it, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. Yeah. So I, I, I got hooked into it a few months ago and I think it's got real potential to be a wonderful uh, platform for discussions on difficult, challenging topics. Um, and so I've got a modern carnivore um, club in Clubhouse. And we've had conversations and I've been a guest in other clubs in Clubhouse. People have asked me to come in to talk about the things that, that we do. And I've had vegans and vegetarians in there that challenge, will challenge certain issues and things like that. But it's a, been really good, respectful discussions. It's not just throwing barbs out there and saying, how could you do that? And, and you know, sort of playing up to, to these memes or, or caricatures of obviously you're this slob hunter that's, that's just out there for, for blood sport and, and you enjoy the uh you know the killing of of animals it's it's a an understanding i think anybody who listens to the stories of people who come through programs in modern carnivore or anybody in the community they'll quickly realize that this is from a position of of again food i want to go get my own food and i want to be connected to it and i want to do it responsibly and um and it's and there's a authenticity. And I think in this era where a lot of younger people are clamoring for transparency and everything, there needs to be transparency. There's nothing more transparent about where your food comes from than going and getting it yourself. And I think people appreciate that. And, uh, you know, we've, I've got a, there's a quote out on, out on our blog from uh, an email I got from a vegetarian who said, I'm a vegetarian and I watched your film, Awaken the Hunter Within. And uh, I just want to say, great job. I really thought it was well done. Um, and this is about three people going out and learning to hunt for the first time. And so I think when you approach it in the right way, um, I, th I think it, 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 it's not combative. Like as an example, a lot of hunting groups or individuals will use the term, the antis are coming, you know, it's, oh, they're, they're anti-hunting, they're anti-guns. And I just, I don't wade into any of those conversations. If somebody says that, I literally will just get up and walk out because that conversation is going nowhere really quick. Um, and so I prefer to have an open dialogue and, and, uh, and have conversations with vegans, vegetarians, animal rights activists who don't believe it's right. Wonderful. Let's have a conversation about it. And I'll tell you my position. You tell me yours, and at the end, we'll probably agree to to disagree on things, but hopefully we can have a level of respect. Right. There's a, a big difference between a discussion that involves questions like, you know, how do you approach this? Or why do you, why do you think like this uh, about this issue or that issue? And uh, why do you kill for fun? You know, th those are two different approaches. And I, I also think there's a difference between the people who, you know, let, let's use a vegetarian, for example, you know, I don't eat meat because of whatever reasons I have, but like, I can appreciate where you're coming from because of whatever reasons you have and, uh, or, or people, um, who maybe eat meat, but aren't, aren't into hunting because they don't, 
you know, they don't like that you kill the animals, but they, they're fine eating meat or eating fish, um, but they don't like the idea of hunting or fishing. You know, th- there's there's different groups, and I feel like it's really hard to look at a whole group with a label like vegan or vegetarian or just non-hunter or non, non-angler. Um, you know, that those groups encompass such a wide variety of people, and I think so- too often they're considered to be one homogenous entity um, as though you, you hear that and you automatically dismiss instead of uh, thinking, you know, maybe maybe there's a vegetarian who just doesn't really like meat, but they're not at all anti-eating meat. They're just like, I don't really like meat. You know, I'm sure there's many, many people out there who fit that category uh, who incorrectly get labeled as some sort of anti, like you said. Um, so I think it's, it's good to remember that the, there's a, such a wide variety of people in these groups that it's, it's best to approach them you know, as, as though you're meeting someone for the first time, like, what would you say to someone you've never met before? Um, and it's so easy online to assume that it's just like a, a username, but like there's a person there and they probably have their own meaningful reasons for why they do and say what they do and say. Right. No, absolutely. That That is what's interesting, interesting about this Clubhouse platform too, is it's all audio. So it's like a live podcast is what it is. And everybody has their profile there and you're literally talking to each other. And so it's social media that actually is social to a certain component. And 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 um, and I think you, it forces people to be more respectful generally because you're talking to a real person. You're not just posting something out there into the ethernet. Right, like I gotcha. I feel like that social media is so much about, I'm going to post this uh five sentence long rant and it's going to be a gotcha and the person's going to have an epiphany and they're going to say, oh, now I see the way because of this random comment, you know, in an Instagram thread or something like that. And I, I don't know why people still think that's going to work, but it seems to still be rampant. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that for the most part, it's been uh, a pretty positive reception. And going going a little bit deeper into the, the food aspect, because I'd, I'd like to get into maybe some tips and recipes and things here if you've got some, but do you just want to talk a little bit about your approach to the idea of being connected to your food? Like, I guess the difference in connection between something that you've caught or killed versus something that you go to the store and buy, because it's it's so easy to go buy a pound of ground beef or tilapia fillets or salmon fillets, whether they're wild caught or not. There's just a difference there when you go to the meat counter and pick it up versus something you've collected yourself. So I just want to hear your thoughts on, on that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, I think it comes down to it's, you know, when I see people come through and for me personally, you know, when you go out and do it yourself, it's transformational versus going in the grocery store, it's transactional. Um, you know, when you take a deer, probably, you know, big game, what's, what's wonderful about big game, although it exists with, with, with any, game that you are field dressing, butchering and cleaning and ultimately, you know, either putting on the table right away or putting in the freezer. But the pro- there's something about the process of butchering a deer and the amount of effort that goes into it. And when you package up in those white wrappers and you write on the label, you know, backstrap, uh, big buck uh, up on the back 40 and the, with the date. And then three months later, you pull it out when people are over and you, you can tell a story around that. Oh gosh, this buck, it was the last day of the season. I was freezing. I thought I was done for the year and I wasn't going to be able to fill the freezer. And this buck came sneaking through in the far distance and, you know, whatever the story is like that. Um, I think it just, it creates an appreciation because of how much effort that goes into it. 
And it's the type of thing it's, it's where, you know, another one of the challenges we have, but I think it is also the draw of, of these, of these activities to people in this day and age, which is, you know, you know, as, as, as an angler, it's, it, um, this isn't instant gratification. (laughs) This is about as far from instant gratification as you can get. And, you know, like fly fishing is a, what I love about it is it teaches me patience every time I go out when I'm swinging, swinging my rod and I'm on my back cast, I'm, I'm hooking up with the tree. Right. <laughs> um, and I'm like, Oh, there I go again. I can't break the rod into, I need to just go back and spend the next 10 minutes carefully getting that tippet unwound. Um, and, and those lessons, I think, I think people, as we get more and more disconnected and more and more instant gratification, I'm hopeful that our tendency will be to be drawn towards those longer games of something that is truly richly rewarding at a deep level that teaches you patience, that teaches you appreciation and gratitude for things like your food. I mean, throughout history of humanity, food was the center of our daily routine, going out and getting it bringing it home, sharing it with the community, either immediate family or your tribe or, or your clan. Um, and just very, very late in, in the last few years, the last few decades, maybe the last couple of generations, we've gotten away from that. And we've gotten to this industrialized level of it meat or food is something that comes in a box or comes under saran wrap on a, on a styrofoam tray. And it's a transaction and it. um, and it's merely fuel to move you on to the next stage of your day. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think culturally we, we really need have, I've always felt we needed to think about more in, in North America and in the U S in particular. Um, I lived abroad uh, for a few years, a number of years ago and, and really got to appreciate, got to a point of really appreciating the ritual of a meal. And, and really sitting down and taking time to enjoy it with people and have, you know, have a meal as the reason you, you live rather than, rather than just fuel to, to get on to the next thing. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, does that sort of answer did, or did I go? No, you're going to have topic? to try again. <laughs> <laughs> No, I bet this kind of goes back to um, what we talked about earlier with just uh, in fishing specifically, uh, how keeping fish occasionally, I feel it can enhance the whole experience, even on days that you're not planning to keep anything um, or on a day that you're, you are keeping fish, but you, you obviously can't keep all fish either for bag limits or size restrictions or things like that. Um, because, you know, we, we were at, um, in Wyoming recently and we kept a couple fish and they had... Um, uh, size restrictions, 20 inches or more. And, uh, well, we thought that was going to be pretty restrictive, but it turned out that we were catching a lot of really big fish. Um, but because of that, you know, every fish that we caught, we kind of inspected it a little bit more closely than we would if we were just going out, catch and release, uh, and knowing that from the start, because every fish you bring in, now you're looking at it and thinking, would this be a good fish to keep? Uh, you know, is it legal? If it is legal, is this a good time to keep a fish? We're going to keep fishing for a while. I don't know if I want this sitting out. Um, and so because of that, it turned into less of a, like 
get the fish, throw it back in. You know, a lot of times, um, and I, and I obviously support getting fish back in the water quickly if you're going to release them. Um, but sometimes I feel like I will release a fish and thinking back, I'm like, I didn't really look at that fish. I just kind of got it off the hook and, and tossed it back. And you know, why am I catching fish if I'm not going to appreciate a fish when I catch it? Um, and I feel like if you have that mindset of you might want to keep it, 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 slows you down a little bit to the point of actually taking time to appreciate each fish and noticing things about it. Uh, you know, how big is it? What does it look like? Because you're kind of assessing whether it's uh, an appropriate fish to keep. Um, and I, that's more fishing than hunting because there, there's no catch and release hunting. But uh, unfortunately, I mean, that might be kind of fun. But, <laughs> but Somebody tried to do it a few years ago. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Won't go there. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's I've never thought about it in that way. That's a really interesting point of taking a catch and release perspective on it and and um, versus keeping a fish in, in the inspection level. You know, on, on the flip side, you know, with, with the hunting component, I've, I've often talked about and I think it applies, it applies to fishing and hunting. Um, and that is, you know, if you're camping, you're canoeing, you're hiking, you're climbing, you're often observing the beauty of, of, of the natural setting you're in. Um, but when you're hunting and fishing, you're, you're actually participating as, as an apex predator animal in, in that, in that wild space. And as a result, you come, become so much more tuned. You're looking for the signs on, on the ground, on the trees. Uh, has something come by here? Was it recent? Was it, is it old? Um, if you catch a fish, is it a healthy fish? It is a, is it the right size to, to keep legally? And I think all of those components, they do enrich the experience and, 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 transition it into a much, a much deeper experience than just sort of observing the, the beauty on, on the superficial level. I agree. Um, I agree with your, your thoughts on being a participant being versus being more of a, a passive observer. Uh, and no, I shade toward any of those other activities too. I, I love participating in, in hiking and skiing and climbing Absolutely. and all these things. Um, but there is something different when you are participating with the the beings that are normally in that environment versus climbing. There's, there's not a lot of animals that would, would do that, I guess. Um, so you're kind of doing something that's uniquely human. Um, and, and that's amazing and awesome, but, uh, there's also something fun about kind of giving up being a human for a little bit. And you are a human in the sense that you're an apex predator. Uh, and, and that is what a human is, but you're kind of allowing yourself to meld into the environment in a different way. Um, that kind of, it says, I, I want to give up things that are uniquely human and become part of this whole that has, you know, existed for thousands and thousands of years. And a lot of these newer things, um, I feel like are different in a way. And it's, it's nice to kind of have that dichotomy of, you know, I can participate in hiking and, and observe the beauty of nature, but I can also go out and decide to participate within nature when I want to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I would say, you know, it's not being, it's not any less human of an activity than our daily routine is. Um, it's just a different facet of it. And I guess I would say it's, it's more of a, of an authentic part of what has been, what it's meant to be human for millennia. Um, and, and just as of late in a very short period of time, again, we've, we've created a lifestyle that we've all gotten very comfortable with and it is wonderful. I mean, we are so, I mean, my gosh, the comforts we have in in modern in this modern world are are amazing, and any previous generation couldn't have dreamed of it. 
Uh, and they're great in so many respects, but they also have their limitations. And, uh, and I think it's good to take those barriers, uh, those buffers from the natural world out of the way periodically and remind ourselves of, of what, of where we came from and, and what's important, uh, in, in the natural world. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Now, uh, going into um, maybe sp- some specifics, I don't know what uh, what all you came kind of prepared for today, but if if someone's looking to maybe transition over to keeping some of what they catch instead of uh, tossing them all back, do you have any tips for crossing that line for the first time? Because I'm sure some people might be a little bit hesitant. You know, I want to start keeping some fish. I'm not really sure how to do that responsibly. Um, I don't want to have to feel bad about what I'm doing. And I want to, you know, make something delicious that me and my family can appreciate. Uh, do you have any tips for, for someone who's looking to make that leap? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a lot of factors to consider. Um, I think the, the ethics of, of a quick clean kill are, are, are the starting point um, and, and trying to, trying to do that as most effectively as possible. So with fishing, you know um, you know, again, not letting, let, not letting the fish, you know, suffer. And like you said, just throw it up on the bank and, and, and let it, uh, and let it die slowly, but I'll, I'll generally kill a fish as, as quickly as possible. Um, and, and not only is that a good ethic, I believe, but it also is, is a, is a, a good way to, to keep the, the meat in the, in the, in the best state. And then, you know, after, after you've got a good, a good kill, you know, making sure you're, you're managing the temperature and the environment that, 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 that animal's in, as effectively as possible, you know, with trout, I'm, I'm gutting them out right away, um, and washing them out and, and try to get them on ice as quickly as possible is, is what I'm doing with trout. Um, and just so everybody knows, I don't ton of trout, but the ones that I do keep, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, and, and when I'm lake fishing, um, you know, using, using a, a live well or a basket, it can be a, an effective way to, you know, where you've got water, fresh water recirculating constantly so that fish is, is, is staying alive and staying healthy. And then, and then again, just managing it by getting it on ice and chilled as quickly as possible. So you're keeping that flesh good and firm and, and it's not going to spoil. And then, you know, make, if you're, if you're not going to eat it right away, make sure you're effectively storing it. You know, if you're ideally, I would say, you know, you've got, you've got a, a, a cryovac air, uh, what, what do you, what's the generic term? I always, I always forget, uh, I forget the brand of mine now too, but you know, the, the packing device to pull all the air out. I don't know why I'm blanking. Oh, tonight. um, like a vacuum sealer. Yeah. Vacuum sealer. There you go. It's a simple <laughs> term. <laughs> Ideally, or at, at minimum, you know, different methodologies of a Ziploc bag, getting as much air out or, or freezing a fish in water. But again, getting it quickly, getting it cold, freezing it effectively, keeping the air away from it, and then, and then you know, consuming it um, within a reasonable period of time so it doesn't get freezer burn. And, uh, and hopefully then doing it with friends or family who you can share the stories and your appreciation and love for this and, and find some great recipes on a site like Modern Carnivore or somewhere else. <laughs> if only there were a place that people could go. <laughs> what's, uh, what's your preferred way of dispatching a fish or does it depend on the hmm. fish and the size? Because I have gone back and forth. I mean, my kind of classic is a bonk on the head. But I find that with certain fish, that goes better than other fish. Yeah. Um, 
And I also admittedly am not the best at uh, knowing when a fish has actually died because there's a lot of times where I'm convinced it's dead and then uh, there's some flopping and I'm not sure if it's, you know, a live flopping or if it's muscle twitches. Um, and so I've, I've also tried like severing the spinal cord, but, you know, on large fish, that's a lot of fish to cut through to get to spinal cord. And it's, I feel like it's it's not an exact science. So do you have any uh, tips on that or um, like what are your preferences? Yeah, you know, it it it, it varies. Uh big fish, I'll bonk them uh, on on the head, you know, if if I if I'm getting a big salmon or something like that up in the back country, I'll yeah, get a big rock and just and just put them out of its misery quick. Um with smaller panfish, a lot of times I'm I'm just taking a flay knife and I'm I'm going into the brain and I'll just I'll just poke it right in. You know, a f- good flay knife is a very sharp tip. And I'm just going to go straight into the brain and cut down into the flesh. And, and there's a fleshy part there. And that generally does the job. Now, that being said, you know, a lot of people will bleed out their fish, too, by cutting cutting the gills and and, and swear by that for, for the meat, uh, preserving the meat. Um, there is oftentimes with fish, there's going to be that muscle twitch movement. And it truly is that. Uh, and so that's why you just need to know that going into it, that that if you have really done a good job, you know, what you think is, is a good job of, of really, you know, whacking that fish on the head and, or then, you know, cutting it down through the brain, like I'll do, um, that fish is dead. And, and those, those nerves are, are definitely flopping around just like a chicken would, just like so many animals do. Um, you know, think of chick running around like a chicken with your head cut off. That's, that's exactly. You know, Swimming away like a fish with its head cut off. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> and I think it, you just need to get comfortable with that. Um, and maybe you never get comfortable. I, I would say, I would say I, whenever a fish does that, and if I'm cleaning a mess of pan fish, like if we've got a big mess of crappies, um, that's, that's going to happen a fair amount, to be honest, they're going to be flopping. And I think about it every time it happens and I don't like it in terms of thinking, okay, well, is, is it dead? But it is. Um, and then, you know, it's just, it, it is, that's just the way every fish. Yeah. Just working through it. Yeah. That's kind of the same place I'm in where I logically know that I should expect fish to be flopping even after they're dead, but I still get alarmed every time I see it and I panic and think, Oh no, I don't want you to suffer. I, w- I want you to die. But, uh, you know, if you, it, there's been points where I just cut the entire head off. Cause I'm like, yeah. I just, you know, I just, I want this to be over and I really don't like seeing fish suffer, but I really like bringing fish home to eat. Um, and I think that's just something that I guess people have to, you know, reconcile with themselves. Um, but I, I like to know if anyone else has found anything that has helped with that process because it's still pretty clumsy for me. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think, I think the, that your concerns over it are really well-founded and I think that'll, it might always be that way. And, and I think, um, you know, just, just continuing to, to do your best with it. That's, that's, that's what you do. Um, I, I don't think there, you know, outside of, yeah, cutting the whole head off. Yeah. That's, that's pretty foolproof. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I would hope so. (laughs) Right. Um, as for um, the different species of fish, uh, do you what what uh, things have you noticed about different species in terms of their edibility? Um, so I know you know plenty of people eat panfish, lots of people love walleye, uh, trout's up there, uh, but people people like all of these things, but they're not all the same. Um, have you noticed like what what specific things have you noticed as differences between the types of fish in terms of their 
edibility or what is what they taste like. Um, yeah, I mean, so I mean, I, I would generally say for most people, the types of fish, if you're start, if you're you know going to be looking to eat freshwater fish, you're you're generally going to have your 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 white fleshy fish and your salmonids, uh, you know, maybe pinkish. Um, and, um, as sort of two primary flavor profiles and then within the white, you know, more of the white fleshed fish, you know, like a, a Northern pike, a walleye, a crappie, a sunfish, a bass, they are fairly similar. There are, there are differences absolutely in the flavors. There's differences in the texture. There's differences in, in the moisture, I think, depending upon the, the, the age of the fish, the size of the fish. Um, but, but they're all, uh, I mean, they're all very good the, here in Minnesota, where I, where I live, uh, the state fish is the walleye and it's sort of the big go-to like it's, um, you know, our opener was last week. It's a big, big celebration in the state. The governor does a big event. Um, uh, if you go out to a restaurant, a good restaurant, there's always going to be a walleye option on the menu. Um, and it is a very good fish, but it's pretty bland, to be honest. Um, I'd take crappie. Crappie is probably my, one of my favorite fish to catch and to eat. Um, you know, it's called the paper mouth. It's got very thin lips. And so you have to hook, to hook them well and you have to be careful and they, they provide a good fight to be really nice sized, and they're wonderful to eat. Um, and so, I mean, most people are going to be eating, eating white, white fleshed fish. They're going to be eating it at a fish fry. So it's going to be fried up. It's going to be battered. Um, you know, I've been experimenting lately with different things with panfish, uh, like butter poaching, uh, which, which has been really fun and just getting more of just that pure fish flavor with, uh, with, with butter. Um, and doing, doing different things like that or doing fish soups. I did, uh, I did a white fish, uh, a white fish bisque this last winter that I made with a Northern pike stock that uh, I had never made, uh, fish stock out of Northern pike before. And, uh, it was, it was so good. And the stock was so good. I was, I was amazed I, that, that, that at this first trial of it, it turned out so well, you would have thought when it was cooking, I had these carcasses of these Northern Pike in the stock pot boiling for hours and hours or simmering. Um, you would have, if somebody would come in the house, they would have sworn I was cooking shrimp. It smelled like shellfish. Oh, okay. That's good Isn't to that hear because I hear fish stock and I think something really awful. <laughs> exactly. And I remember somebody saying once it smells, it's going to smell fishy in your house. But a good fishy, not a bad fishy, and that is exactly what it was. It was a good fishy. <laughs> okay, like a like a seafood boil kind of thing instead right, of a, right. instead of a greasy fish sitting in a pot. <laughs> <laughs> That's two weeks too old. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> now, so, now yeah, about, so, okay, go ahead. I was going to say so, and then salmon and trout. You know, um, very different. You know, we've got. Uh, you know, we've got uh, freshwater steelhead. We've got uh, lake trout up on Lake Superior here in the Midwest. We've got, uh, you know, browns, brookies, rainbows in the streams and lakes, some put and take, some native uh, stock, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, most people haven't, I would say most people haven't had that. Um, I, I do love that. Oh my gosh. Like being out, at, uh, you know, out trout fishing and keeping a couple fish 
and and frying them up whole on the pan over a campfire and eating the whole fish and i mean like the whole fish the head the 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 um the tail uh crispy like a potato chip etc um there's nothing better now have you noticed the difference between stalkers and wild trout because i feel like i've caught trout that have more of that kind of pinkish orange flesh and then you catch the trout that have a translucent almost beige flesh um and I don't, I don't keep enough fish where I've really detailed like what my favorite, what my favorite trout to eat is or my favorite size. Um, I know people classify like, oh, that's a good eater. Um, but what have you noticed in terms of patterns like that? Uh, if if you have noticed anything? Yeah, not a whole lot. Although I, I will say, a few years ago, um, my my younger brother and I, we were we were uh, doing a fair amount of of uh, fishing just on on these uh, stocked lakes in northern Minnesota, and they 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 stock rainbows, and um, we kept several, and um, they were inedible. Uh, so, like you said, the the flesh was was opaque, uh, and it and it actually was mushy. There's no firmness to it, and so. I don't know if it was, we were theorizing that it was, it was maybe that year's or the previous year's stocking brood and, and it just wasn't ready, um, yet, but, um, yeah, it was, it was really unfortunate cause they, they looked like perfectly good fish, but, but you literally, it was, it was pretty much inedible. That's interesting to hear because I've heard people, um, claim that specific species are mushy. Mm. And I have not experienced that, but I've experienced what you said where certain like individual fish have been mushy. And I wonder if it's more of a, was it stocked recently or has it been in the water? Even if it's a stocked fish, maybe it's a holdover. Maybe it's been in there for a couple of years and has kind of become wild, if you will. Um, and I wonder if that's why people have claimed that certain species are mushy because maybe you know, you claim that a rainbow is mushy because you kept a stalker rainbow, or you claim that a brook trout is mushy because you kept a stalker brookie. Um, I wonder if that's where that's coming from because I've, yeah. I've noticed the same thing, but I haven't noticed a pattern with it really. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know at all. Just anecdotal ex experience, but I, I wonder also if that is the case. Cause I think, I think so, so often, uh, people get these ideas in their head of, oh, that's a trash fish, or that's not a good eating fish or what have you. Um, and, and they're based on, on anecdotes, not on, not on really any, any true facts. I think, you know, you've got species like eel pout here in Minnesota that, um, you know, that, that are a freshwater cod that, that people for years, when I was a kid, you'd see them just all thrown up on the ice and up on the shore and people would, ah, they'd throw them away. They'd say, we got to get those out of the lake. There's too, there's too many of them. And they're just junk fish. And it's a wonderful eating fish. Um, and, and so I think there's a lot, a lot of things out there. I mean, look at, look at the changes in fly fishing, like you said, of, of carp and other things that people are going after now that they never would have gone after 20 years right. ago. And so I think people just start to question these, these, these ideas that for whatever reason got into popular culture and, uh, maybe were founded on something valid, but a lot of times aren't, I think. Yeah, if I'm, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that carp were brought over here as a food fish. Yeah, um, they were from from England, I believe. And yeah, I don't know anyone today that eats carp, but I have, right. I have, have been interested in trying one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to see what well, it tastes like. Big, you know, big fishing sport fish in in the UK. Uh, people going carp fishing, yeah. Mm -hmm. You need to get quite a few of your friends together to finish off a, a big carp, though. I think yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. not going to eat that yourself. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of, of rough fish. Um, you know, we have a red horse here in in uh, in Minnesota, uh, which is a type of sucker. And uh, at at our turkey hunting camp just a, a few weeks ago, uh, uh, Greg Kvali, uh, one of our mentors, he was up uh, fishing sturgeon on the Rainy River uh, up on the Canadian border. And he brought some smoked sturgeon for people to try, which is one of the most amazing fish if you've never had it. Oh, my gosh. Um, and then he made a... a a red horse sucker, uh, dip that people went nuts over. I mean, more so than any other food the entire weekend, they just went nuts over it. And it's a rough fish, unlimited, you know, take. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think the ideas of what's a good fish, what's a bad fish to eat, I think is needs to be called into question. Anytime somebody says that. Now, is that a smoked fish dip or, uh, did, was it uh, prepared a different way? Because I've heard of like smoked whitefish. Um, and in this case, I'm talking about mountain whitefish. So what we have out here, which are not like the same deep water ones you have there. I'm actually not that familiar with your whitefish. I'm I'm aware of them, but uh, I don't know much about them. But I know out here, people will smoke the mountain whitefish and turn that into, I think, like a cream cheese based dip. Is it is it similar to that? Yeah, so you can do it exactly, and that's in, and I unfortunately didn't even get to try this dip the other day because oh, by no. the time I got over to the table, it was all gone. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's probably what it was. It was probably a smoked uh, smoked fish dip. Um, okay. Would be would be my guess as to how he made it. Yeah, and and you could do it absolutely. You know, with a smoked whitefish, a lake whitefish, or a mountain whitefish. Um, you know, we we chase. Uh, um, uh, white lake whitefish here with in the winter tide through in the dark house, which is, which is a lot of fun. And, um, and yeah, smoking that fish is great, but you can do a lot of other things with that fish too. You can poach it. You can, uh, you can, uh, make fish cakes out of it. You can do a lot of different things. Now, I'm so glad you brought up the, the dark house there. Cause I, I actually ran out of other questions and I was going to have to have this really awkward transition over to, uh, dark house spearing, which was the <laughs> last, the last thing I wanted to ask about, uh, which is completely unrelated to every other thing we've talked about. But since you brought it up, I, I can follow up with my questions <laughs> about dark house spearing. Um, and I guess my questions are kind of all over the board because I know next to nothing about it, except that I've been seeing it more and more in, uh, media in the past like year or two probably um from you i i was, probably wasn't aware of it at the time but i remember hearing you on go wild's podcast um i've seen meat eater dark house spearing it's just kind of come about in the past year or two so um i'd love to just learn a little bit more about it because it's such a foreign way of, of fishing in my mind it's it's not something i was familiar with but it almost seems like a combination of fishing and hunting which sounds uh, fantastic to me so um i'd love to just learn more about it if you want to give me kind of an overview of what's involved Sure. You bet. It's, it's not in a very effective way to do, you can't do spear and release. That doesn't work very well because <laughs> it is more like hunting than, than fishing. And, and yeah, we did, we did this whole series this last year called, uh, hard water hunters, uh, and, and sort of going off that theme of, of, yeah, it's, it's more like hunting it's, it's like, um, it's probably similar to bow hunting out of a stand for white-tailed deer would maybe be a, a good parallel. You know, a lot of people will, will do, draw parallels between turkey hunting and elk hunting because of the engagement with the animal of the calling. I think there's a similarity between, between dark house spearing and, and, um, stand hunting. So what you do is, um, it's, it's, it's a very niche space. Um, it's basically Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Minnesota, and New York as sort of like the areas of, 
of where it became popular in, in recent times was uh, the depression uh, when people were needing to be subsistence uh, anglers. And, and this was a way to get uh, a fairly large amount of protein uh, during the cold winter months. And so, um, you know, it's, it's based on a lot of traditions that even the origins of it aren't completely understood because there are certain Scandinavian perspectives of the Finns, the Norwegians, Swedes, um, that have a culture, but, but also the native Americans of, of spearing through the ice. And so how it works in modern times is, is you go out and, and let's use whitefish as an example. That's one of my favorite, uh, quarry, quarry to go after. And, uh, you do it early ice, which would be December. Generally, you could do it into January a little bit, but the, the lake whitefish is a fall spawning fish. And so generally they're running very deep, 50, 60 feet and more and deeper, uh, in the lakes, very cold, cold waters. And in the fall, they come up to spawn in the, in the shallows. And so this is when you can spot them in, in a dark house. And so what you do is you, you find a good, a good spot and you cut a hole in the ice, approximately three feet by two feet or whatever size makes sense for you. And this is kind of a square hole, right? Versus like a typical ice fishing hole that's more of just a tiny hole in front of you. Exactly. So you could either chisel it out. I've never done that. That would be a long, long process, but that's the way it was originally done. Uh, I grew up using a chainsaw as the most common way of doing it. Um, but now I've got a point where what I do generally is I'll use a, a, a lithium ion battery powered ice auger and I'll, I'll punch six holes evenly spaced. And, um, and there's actually meat eater has, has a video out on their YouTube channel. When I took, uh, I took Giannis Patelis out, out spear fishing, uh, a year ago this last winter. And, uh, and so there's, I think they put a video out of where I explain how to cut, cut a hole, a spearing hole. You know, and, I think uh, I probably saw that and didn't realize it was you because I, <laughs> I watched an episode where Giannis went out spearing for us for sturgeon. Is that, was that you? That was a different, no, that was a different one. That was part of the same trip. So he okay. we, we went over there right after, after we did the whitefish spearing. Oh, I'm going to have to look yours up then. Uh, what's, what's, do you know what the name of that video is in case people want to I think see it's it? called like uh, stab them and eat them or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily the title I would have put on it, but I think that's what it is. Well, that's not going to draw the vegetarians. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the second one in what's called the Fur Hat Ice Tour. So it's the Fur Hat Ice Tour, yeah. (laughs) But um, but yeah, so I'll punch holes with an with the an ice auger. It's usually an eight inch diameter, and then I've got a handsaw that I'll cut between those holes, and then you've got again this two foot by three foot on average uh, square hole, and then what you're doing, you're generally for for the way I do it, I, I'm doing it in usually seven to nine feet of water, ideally. You're then going to put a shelter over the top of that. And that could be a small little tin shack with made out of plywood and tin and, and with a shingled roof. Or it could be one of these hubs, these modern ice fishing uh, hubs made by companies like Clam and Eskimo, where they pop open, they fold down to a compact shape, and then you can pop them out. And, uh, and you put that over, over the hole and, and you're creating a darkened atmosphere in there. And what happens is that hole lights up like a TV screen and you sit over that hole. You, you, you lean over it with it, with a little stool, and then you, you jig a, a decoy 
and it could be any number of different things. The most typical is is a, a balsa wood um, uh, shaped fish decoy. It looks like a lure. It looks like a plug, but it's but there's no hooks on it. And you're going to swim that around in circles to draw in the fish. Um, there are other things like golf balls and other things that have been used as attractors just to like draw the fish in. And then when the fish comes through the hole, you're waiting for that fish to come through. You're trying to decoy it in. And if you're going after Northern Pike, they will oftentimes come in quickly and they'll hit that decoy and they're so fast and it'll scare the heck out of you. Um, whitefish are generally more just coming through. They're, they're just sailing by. Maybe they'll check out what you're doing. Um, but then you've got a spear in the other hand, uh, generally a five to seven timed spear. And you're going to carefully lower that spear down because that fish will see it if you're not careful. And as I say, right behind the ears, you want to get back on that neck right behind the gills and very carefully throw that spear and uh, take that fish. Now that, that sounds like so much fun to me. Um, I haven't gone ice fishing and I'd like to go ice fishing, but this sounds more engaging than ice fishing. Um, a little bit more active. So this, this just sounds awesome. And getting to watch watch what's going on below you. Um, it is. Now, the decoys I remember seeing on the uh, the YouTube show I watched were pretty large. Um, it, it wasn't as small as I would consider like a typical lure. Do you know like what, like what draws the fish in? Are they just curious? Because I got the impression that the decoy isn't really meant to meant to act as a bait. I, it sounds like for pike, maybe it does, but it's, it's supposed to be more of like a curiosity thing, right? Right. I, I, Oh, and who knows exactly what the fish is thinking, but I'm, like I said, you know, I've had, had Northern Pike come in and they will smack that decoy hard. I've actually got a video. I don't know if it's out on YouTube or not of, of a Northern Pike coming in. And I just had the camera running over my shoulder and it comes in and it hits the decoy hard and I, and I pick it up after it. And there are, there are big scratches along it from the teeth. As soon as that Pike realizes that this is not a real minnow. They're, they're, they're off generally. Um, but yeah, I mean, the decoys could be anywhere from, you know, two to three inches to my friend, John has got one. that's his favorite one. It's about 12 inches long and, and a big cigar shaped lure, uh, or decoy. And so, you know, all varying sizes, I, like I said, I think, I think with it, with the, the white fish, it's generally just to create curiosity. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, it varies and it is a lot of fun. You'll, you'll, you should come up sometime and we'll take you, we'll take you out dark house spearing. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I might have to take you up on that. I, one thing I was wondering though, is it sounds like it's a, an early season activity because of the whitefish spawning, but how thick does the ice have to be? I would assume with such a large hole that you need some pretty thick ice to sit on it safely around it. Is that like, is the ice thick enough by then? Yeah, I mean, so that's obviously a consideration, an a very important consideration. And so you want a few inches of ice, um, you know, generally speaking. And that, you know, it's it's that fine line and it can go quickly sometimes where, you know, you get that first ice and people, people some, some anglers want to get out there right away because that is really good fishing but I do not push it. It's just, it's just not worth it to, to get out there too early. But, uh, I mean, generally speaking, you know, you might have anywhere from, you know, four inches to 12 inches of ice, you know, you get later in the season and that's where it becomes difficult too. like there, we, we, we went spearing, uh, later in the season this winter and, and, oh my gosh, what was it? Maybe 18 inches of ice. And so you're pulling up those blocks of ice with ice tongs. Oh yeah. It's, it's a serious power lift. 
Yeah. So it, when you when you saw it, does it come off in one big block, or are you uh, usually pulling out that that hole in chunks? Yeah, you usually. I'm usually doing it in two chunks, um, and and those are big enough as it is. If you look on my Instagram, you'll see some big chunks that we pulled out this last winter. Like I said, um, but it's it's generally two pieces. Some people do um, push it under. Uh, we did a podcast back in December. We were we were um, spearing up right near the boundary waters, and uh, and 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 we were talking about uh, the guests, and I were talking about. Uh, the methodology of pulling out versus pushing them under. And, and so, you know, some people will just slide them back. They'll push them down underneath the rest of the ice, and then they'll try to slide them back as far as they can. And I think it's, I think you could do that more effectively with early ice. Once you get to be thicker ice, I think that has the potential to cause distraction for the fish. And I don't think it's necessarily a smart thing. Yeah, this this is also interesting because it just it seems so like I guess what I like about it is there's so many different ways of catching fish, um, and a couple ways seem to get most of the attention. Um, <laughs> you know, you talk about like fly fishing, spin fishing, bait casting. You know, those things are kind of like the I would consider like the big three maybe. Um, but then right. there's so many you hear about like catfish jugging down in the south and and dark house spearing, and it makes you wonder how many other like very localized techniques there are around the country that you're just not familiar with. And I'm sure some people wouldn't have any interest in, in varying, but like, I, I just find these things so fascinating. Uh, all the ways that people have, have rallied around trying to get fish out of the water, you know, and whatever yeah. way is the most efficient. And that's, and that's what it is. I, I think it's, I think it's a lot of times it's these niche cultural methods that were just grown out of necessity at times when people said, Hey, you know what? We need to get some food on the table, and what's how how can we do that most effectively? And uh, and I think when the rise of of sport fishing came about, maybe those methods were looked at as less than sporting or something. Um, but I I love it. I agree because I think it's such commentary and interesting things on on culture, on history, on on so many so many different levels. Right, right. Well, Mark, I will uh, I'll let you get going, but. Um... Just to wrap up, do you want to share where people can find you, um, Modern Carnivore, your podcasts, uh, basically anywhere you want people to to locate you? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if people are interested in learning more, they go to modcarn.com. Uh, is short for modern carnivore, uh, or they can go to modern carnivore. Um, but, uh, and that, that's really the, the center point of where you can go off to, if they want to check out the learning portal for hunting, that is, uh, is huntingcamp.live. So either modcarn.com or huntingcamp.live. Uh, modcarn, you can find the podcast, you can find films we've done like a way hunter within find recipes and, and all kinds of different things. Awesome. Well, I'm gonna have to go check out the uh, the film. I know we talked about some films before we started, but also the the stab them and eat them uh, sounds like <laughs> a great one to check out. And uh, careful offering up uh, the opportunity to come up and and dark house fear with you because I might have to take you up on that. It sounds like a lot of fun. Anytime you want to do it, seriously, if you want to do it this winter, I know John Kachorik and I will be doing more of it again and probably breaking out the hard water hunter series. And so you, you come on up and and be part of it. It'd be it'd be fun. I think you'd have a lot of fun with it. That, sound, that sounds great. I'll, I'll definitely be in touch with you. Uh, but I, I'll let you get going for tonight. But thanks again so much for coming on. I had a great time. Me too. Thanks a lot, Katie. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. 
And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.